When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the world of the unusual, the bizarre, and occasionally the macabre. You're listening to Beyond Reality Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the program. J.V. Johnson has the night off. My name is Bruce Markison, and... I'll do my best to fill in over the next two hours on tonight's edition of Beyond Reality Radio. We are going to be talking about um, kind of an existential question. Are we alone in the cosmos? Our guest tonight is Bernie Taylor, naturalist and author. And he'll attempt to answer that question by examining nature's timekeeping systems. We'll try to explain exactly what those time keeping systems are before we get into the heart of the program though i'd like to remind you uh, about some of the ways that you can follow the program in addition to uh, listening to it which obviously is a good way as well we do have a website beyondrealityradio.com and if you go there not only can you listen live but at other times you can listen to archive shows we tape all the shows Uh, Whether it's JV hosting or me, whatever, uh, we have them all there. A lot of great shows in that archive at beyondrealityradio.com. Also, we do have a chat room. That's a great way to listen. Our chat room, you can find it on YouTube, JV Johnson on YouTube. And you can participate in the chat. Always lively conversation during the two hours of our program. You can also follow us social media, Facebook. Just go to at Beyond Reality Radio. Again, that's at Beyond Reality Radio. You can follow us as well on Snapchat and Instagram. And if you'd like to follow me, uh, that's welcome as well. I have a Facebook page at Ghostly Gallery, and that'll take you to Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. We delve into all sorts of stuff there. Uh, the world of the horror, world of horror, sci-fi, the paranormal, supernatural, movies, literature, ghosts. I do actually uh, ghost tours in my hometown. Uh, lots of interesting stuff that we get into. Earlier today, I actually posted uh, at the Ghostly Gallery this um, kind of a significant anniversary for those of you that are uh, listening in uh, certain time zones, uh, it is uh, still August the 1st, the first day of the new month. And it was on August 1st, 1883, that one of the greats of horror was born. Um, speaking of the legendary Lon Chaney Sr., born August 1st, 1883, a star of the silent era. Many of his films have not been seen by a lot of folks that are around today, even though Some of them have been preserved. Many, unfortunately, have simply been lost to time. That's one of the problems you deal with from the silent era. One of those films that he did, uh, London After Midnight, Um, probably have seen still shots. And I actually have a a still black and white photograph at the Ghostly Gallery page that shows you what 
Cheney looked like in his makeup. Of course, he carried around his own makeup kit, did his uh, own makeup, his own costumes. Um, The only thing we really have, though, from that movie, London After Midnight, are the still shots. The film itself uh, has unfortunately been lost, probably will never be recovered. Some of his other films, probably his two most iconic films, though, they are still preserved. uh, Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, It's also interesting to note that Cheney was somebody that probably would have transitioned into the sound era. In the 1930s, uh, he was actually scheduled to play Dracula. He was scheduled to play the vampire in the original Dracula film of 1931. uh, But he became very seriously ill with lung cancer. And unfortunately, um, it it got so bad uh, that, um, you know, he had to stop working. And he actually passed away in 1930 really just a few months before they were scheduled to start filming. And, of course, it turned out that uh, with his passing, Bella Lugosi was then chosen uh, to be the first uh, Dracula. But when you talk about somebody who played um, figures of a paranormal or supernatural nature, uh, he also played people, humans, that um, often were monstrous in different ways. Uh, a tremendously versatile actor, Uh, Somebody that had an extremely expressive face and this ability to convert himself into so many different appearances, so many different creatures, monsters, killers, psychotics sometimes. Uh, He was nicknamed the Man of a Thousand Faces for good reason. Uh, and He's one of the most legendary horror actors of all time, the great Lon Chaney Sr., born August 1st, 1883, sadly died 1930. Uh, was only in his 40s and uh, would have seemingly had uh, a much longer career, but even in that short time, had a tremendous impact. So just a little bit of history as we get started with tonight's edition of the show. We'd also like to remind you about some of the upcoming programs. Uh, Tomorrow night is Friday night, so that's a best-of show. We'll get you into the weekend with our best-of program And then starting next week, JV will be back with some live guests. On Monday, JV will talk to Stephen A. Schwartz. He is a futurist, a scientist, and an author. He'll be discussing his work with remote viewing and its uses in archaeology, national security, and generally examining what the future will be like. So Stephen A. Schwartz coming up on the Monday show. On Tuesday, JV's guest will be Gerald I'm sorry, Gerard Artson, excuse me on that, educator, author, and student of the ageless wisdom. He asserts that the people behind the UFOs are on a spiritual mission to help our ailing world. So Gerard Artson will get into the area of UFOs and what their mission might be. And then next Wednesday night, six nights from now, uh, JV's guest will be Mark Kyes, Uh, Mark is a parapsychologist and director of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association. He'll explain how his criminal investigation background now informs paranormal investigations. That's going to be coming up uh, the first hour of next Wednesday's program. So those are some of the coming attractions here on Beyond Reality Radio. Again, JV has the night off. Bruce Marcuson filling in. And we'll get started. Tonight's show, our guest, Bernie Taylor. 
Bernie is a naturalist and an author of several books. He will try to answer this question tonight. Are we alone in the cosmos by examining nature's timekeeping systems? We'll begin the conversation with Bernie Taylor in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to Beyond Reality Radio. (laughs) Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's the Noodle Shark because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. And tonight's our pleasure to talk to our guest, Bernie Taylor. Uh, Bernie is an independent naturalist, thought leader, and an author whose research explores the mythological connections and the biological knowledge among prehistoric, indigenous, and ancient peoples. Uh, he's written some books in these areas, including Biological Time, came out in 2004. And more recently, the book Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. And that came out just a couple of years ago, 2017. We welcome Bernie Taylor to the program. Bernie, thank you for joining us tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, Bruce. And I just liked Bruce Marcuson's Ghostly Gallery on (laughs) Facebook. So you need to like my Before Orion page in return. That's only fair. And I will do go. so. I will so, do so um, as soon as the show ends. Thanks for having ends. me on the, on the program tonight. This is the show that it's it's kind of taboo out there in the alternative world. Alternative world. This is this is the the topic that you will be forever banned from contacting the <laughs> desert. Why is that? Because we're tonight we're going to kill off more aliens than Sigourney Weaver. Okay. Okay. We're going to ask the ultimate question: Not just are we alone in the cosmos. But do intelligent, um, timekeeping, tre- you know, ETs, do they actually even exist? And we're going to ask the question in a way that everybody's going to walk away and say, oh, my God. All right. That sounds alone. good. That's a good tease. Let me ask. And that's, by... the, that's where we're going to be at by the end of this show. Okay. Are you, re- are you ready to lock, lock, um, lock and road, lock, and, um, lock up your, um, and load your guns and take a shot at some of these? Uh, we're going to do our best over I'm the next uh, couple of hours. Hey. Let me begin by asking this question. You talk yeah. about nature's timekeeping systems. I- explain exactly what do you mean by that phrase? What is that? Exactly. And the best place to answer that question, we start answering it on the beaches of Southern California in about March. And at the new and the full moons, the highest of the high tides, so-called spring tides, the California grunion swims up on the beach. And the, the, the males and the females, they come up with these high tides. She drops her eggs, he fertilizes them, and they catch the next big wave out. Fifteen days later, the juveniles, at the, the next high, high tide, the full of the new moon, the juveniles emerge from the, the sand and catch the wave out to the ocean. So the, the timing of the grunion is timed to the, the waves, but, which is a function of the tides of the sun, the earth, and the moon. Interesting concept. And so that's 15 days apart between each of those segments. So that's a biological time mechanism. 
that the grunion is tied to as both a marine and a tr- almost a terrestrial animal. Mm-hmm. And so it's time to the Earth, the Sun, and Moon. So let's say millions and millions of years in the past, the Earth, the Moon was closer to the Earth because the Moon is, has been moving away 1.3 centimeters per year. So many, many millions of years ago in the past, it would have been, let's say, a 10-day t- um, duration between the two tides. The grunion would have had a completely different timing mechanism. It would have had to grow faster, slower, or something like that. Because the juveniles couldn't, right now they take 15 days to get ready to, to grow strong enough to emerge from the sand and go out into the surf. So they're, they're biologically timed to our relationship with the moon. Which has exist only exists has existed in the last tens of millions of actually hundreds of millions of years. So in many hundreds of millions of years in the future, the grunion can't have that timing mechanism. So an, think about it, an animal is timed to both the Earth and the Moon, now, and I call that biological time. And in okay. tonight's program, we're going to talk about animals across the biological spectrum that include you know elk and other big animal undulates on land that have the same timing mechanism. And we're going to explore that. People have known about this for tens of thousands of years. Now, you mentioned, Bernie, that the moon is moving about a centimeter, a little more than a centimeter away from the Earth per year. Do we know why that's happening? You know, that's a good question. I was at the at, um, Institute for Astronomy at the University of Hawaii just a few months ago, and I gave this, this presentation. And... Um, there is a fellow there, his, na- um, his name is um, Gre- uh, Greenberg. And Greenberg, he studies moon sand. Actually, studies sand around the world, but he also studies moon sand. And, he- and through the study of the moon sand that came back from the Apollo missions, we- so just to let you know, we actually went to the moon. Just put that out there, okay? And he can prove it by the moon sand. Um, the moon sand is the same as what the, the um, sand on this earth. Okay. But the slight difference is, is that micrometeorites shoot right through them. And so these tiny little sand bites, if you look at them through a microscope, they have a hole in them, a hot hole, which we don't have with sand on, on, on Earth. And so there's many theories about how the moon was formed, but fundamentally because the, the, the minerals on the moon are exactly the same as they are on Earth, it's believed that somehow the moon at some many distant point out past was part of planet Earth. Um, and that it's, it's so it's moving away. It's so some, it's believed that something hit it, mm-hmm. um, and something is questionable. And the it's been moving away ever since. This same this same at the Institute for Astronomy. It's a you know it's a it's a think tank where they have all the instruments, the telescopes. They also have the PanStar program, which looks for killer asteroids. So we're talking football field side asteroids that if they hit your city, you're done. And they also have a, a tel- instruments that study the solar, solar outburst flares. And it's believed that if a solar flare hits us, we will, all electrons will be fried. So this is like a, it's a pretty serious place to be. Yeah. And I gave this presentation at the end of it. You know, there are people shaking their heads, there are people nodding their heads, because um, it asks this big question. Um, but it, these are the same people who study these other questions of, you know, killer asteroids and solar flares. And, um, and we also talked about how the, the moon moves away from the Earth, and they gave their theories, the many astronomical theories, why. Um, but it, it, is, it is a thing, um, and we will 
our, our moon will move much further away. The tides will be different. And there was a time in our very distant past where the moon was so close to the Earth that the tides washed across the continents. And we, we ourselves couldn't have lived in, during that time period because it was just one soupy mess. Um, but, yeah, there's a, we have a history, and we can, we can look at animals today to find that relationship with the moon and to see not only their biological time, but we can project that concept into the cosmos. Is it possible for other planets to have the same relationship for the same type of timekeeping mechanisms to ultimately give us the conscious timekeeping um, beings as humans are? We have just a couple of minutes before a hard break coming up at the bottom of the hour. This distance, the growing distance between the Earth and the Moon, is that a concern in the short term? Or is no, it, oh, it's, so hundreds of millions of years. Um, actually, it's not a concern um, in the short term. Um, it's not even a concern in the long term, because the tides will just be different for us. Um, and so this is not one of those catastrophic, you know, catastrophic things, right. but the asteroids are. Um, you know, just, just a week ago, there was an asteroid that you know, just missed the Earth or something, right? And I asked the, I asked the person, the guy who, I went to the war room, you know, you know mm. the, where they have the monitors, and I asked the guy, you know, every once in a while we hear on NPR on the radio that we just missed an asteroid, and I said, how did, that we didn't see the asteroids, because we always hear about the next day. Yeah. I said, you know, do we really, how can we don't see the asteroids? He says, well, two things. One is we don't see them when they come out the sun, because we're looking at the bright light. And then the other ones, we actually saw them, but we didn't want to alert the world. Um, and so when you, when you hear about these killer asteroids that just missed us, um, people knew. Yeah. Um, and they, um, they just didn't want to tell us, which is okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, but no, the, the, the relationship between the Earth and the Moon is not a concern in our time, um, and it won't be for many generations in our, in our future. Bernie, earlier you talked a little bit about the importance the moon has for animals. Is that something that exists for all animals? Do they all Good have question. this connection or just and, some? Good question. And we were talking about the California Grunion. We're going to go fly across the Pacific Ocean to the island of Taiwan. Um, so the, the rogue province of the People's Republic of China. And on the island of Taiwan, there's a, uh, indigenous people, sort of like Native Americans. Okay, they're not they're, they're not original Chinese, and they're called the Yami people. And every every late spring, the Yami count go out on the new moon, and they count new the new moon is twelve last twelve twelve new moons. Is, they count from the last twelve new moons ago, and they go out for a fish called a flying fish, and they go out during the dark of the night, and they hold their their torches up. And if, and if the flying fish are there, they basically fly around. They catch them in their nets. They bring them back and have a flying fish ceremony. If the flying fish doesn't, isn't there, they wait one more new moon, so let's say 20, 29 more days. And then the, the flying fish is always there. Well, the importance of this flying fish is, is amazing. It's that it resets the appearance of the migratory flying fish, resets their entire biological calendar for hundreds of species of marine life. So if, when the flying fish is later, so is, let's say, hypothetically, the yellow and tuna and, uh, you know, the jacks and whatever else they, that they, they, they harvest in the marine world. So hundreds of species of fish that the yammy have been timing since time immemorial. So 
ten, at least 10,000 years, if not 20,000 years, that the Yami have been doing this, or and their predecessors. So is this important to us? Well, it's sure as heck important to the Yami, because they don't have, they don't have historically, they didn't have Costco's, and they didn't have McDonald's, and everything else that we do. And if they missed, the, they missed, if they were, if their clock was, you know, when the, you know, the yellow food tuna were in, and they were out looking for sea turtles, um, because they, they were off of their clock, well, they, they missed the food. Um, so it was important for the, historically, and still important for the Yami, to keep this calendar. It is their ultimate tradition. In the Pacific Northwest of the United States, where I live, Native Americans have the same tradition, but it's salmon. And they would tie the salmon to other animals. So near, near the, um, the Tualat people near Seattle, they go out in the late spring, and they look for the white pine butterfly. And when the white pine butterfly appears, they wait for the next um, high, high tide around the, the new and the full moons. And that sets them in motion to go find the salmon, because they believe that because the, the salmon, in their, in their tradition and a myth, is tied to that white pine butterfly. And it is in the same way that the hundreds of species of marine life are timed to the, the, the flying fish. But they're not exactly timed one to the other. They're both on lunar calendars. That's the important thing. And in the Pacific Northwest here, salmon are earlier, later, four, near the next. But they're not really that way. They're just on a lunar calendar. The moon is out of sync with the sun. The lunar, the lunar, the lunar cycle of light is 29 and a half days. 29 and a half days divided by... Well, 365 into divided by 29.5 days is 11 days short. So hypothetically, if a salmon migrated during the new moon um, on January 12th one year, it would be January 1st the next year. So the reason the salmon are perceived to be earlier or later, in the same way as the white pine butterfly and the flying fish, is that both times the sun and the moon, which is out of sync with each other, which of course is Easter. Easter is the first full moon that succeeds the so the first Sunday that succeeds the first full moon after the vernal equinox. That's why Easter moves around one year for the next. And, of course, Easter, you can use an Easter calendar to time fish, migratory fish. And we know where, now you know where the fish in Easter comes from. Yeah. Um, so as a concept, this is, since the beginning of man, as far as we know, this has been like the big kahuna. This is the big knowledge to be able to know where and when you should be and how you're going to find the food. Because the Native Americans, if they showed up late, earlier later for the salmon, they missed their food. Right. And they died. End of story. So the fish have the connection. What about other kinds of animals? Well, good question. Well, as you, as you move up, the, I live, so I live in Oregon near Portland. As you move up the Columbia River, the Native American tribes not just have salmon on the calendar, but they have black-tailed deer, and they have elk. And so, and the, the, for example, the Thompson Indians, which are up in British Columbia, they, instead of resetting off of the flying fish, they reset their calendar off of the, the rut of the black-tailed deer. And of course, the black-tailed deer has a set gestation period, so so many, so many, so many days later, you could tell when the, you would know when they, they dropped their young. Right. Um, and so, and then when they would drop their antlers and so on. And so the entire year of the, um, the Thompson Indians is set around the black-tailed deer, and the other animals fit in there. Do you have a big, do you have a big game hunt? Never. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so this is one of those big you know, elk and deer hunters. They talk about this. Yeah. But it was never, um, 
no one actually had the, the data or actually showed this before I did in biological time. Well, actually, in modern times, but Native Americans knew it since time immemorial. Right. The Thompson River calendar, the Thompson Indian calendar, goes back before white men arrived. And they no longer use this calendar, but we have it. We have the record of it from anthropologists who who recorded it over 100 years ago. And so these large animals have it as well. And there was a, um, a University of British Columbia um, um, uh, biologist named Sinclair, and he looked at this question among the Serengeti wildebeest. You know the Serengeti wildebeest, they, they huge migrations across Tanzania. And you see they cross the river and the crocodiles jump on them. You've seen on National Geographic, right? Sure. You've seen the picture. Okay. Okay. Well, if you want to go see that, if you want to go see the Serengeti wildebeest migration, and you call up the, the, the African travel agency, and you say, I want to go June 1st, they're going to say, well, we don't look at it that way. We actually look at it as a lunar calendar. Because the Serengeti wildebeest migrate by the moon. Right. And not only do they migrate by the moon, but St. Clair from the University of British Columbia, he demonstrated that the start of the rut of the Serengeti wildebeest was timed to the moon. And how they did that was they looked at the, the young, the juveniles, the game wardens looked at the juveniles, and they back-calculated the gestation period to figure out when, these anim- when the Serengeti wildebeest um, were having their rut, which is synchronous, a concept is synchronous, analogous, to the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, which were timing off of the black-tailed deer. So we have people on different continents have the same biological or scientific knowledge that goes back since time immemorial. So it's the no- big deal. This is like the most important. So let's say after fire, okay? After fire, being able to time these animals and know where and when they're going to be based on the sun and the moon is like the it is the most important thing we ever figured out and without that we'd be like a chimpanzee or a gorilla smart animals but they can't tell time in this way in fact as far as we know we are the only animal on this planet that can do this that can consciously tell time so the black-tailed deer they respond to, to light dark cycles as does the salmon and the, and the flying the, the flying fish's title and uh, but Every, all these other animals re- respond to natural cues. They can't think forward and back in time. You know, orangutan can remember they had a bad day last week. It just can't tell you which day it was. Yeah. Um, we, I can tell you which day it was. And that's the difference between us and all the other animals. It's like the big, it's the, it is the most important concept you could possibly imagine. How much time do we have left before the break? Well, it's a floating break, so that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> okay, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're going to – so <laughs> this, this question of the big, the big game, the big animals, um, when I wrote Biological Time, I was writing Biological Time, someone said to me, you know, you should really think about if Native Americans have this tradition, maybe people had it in, in um, the Paleolithic, you know, t- 10 to you know, 40,000 years ago. So I looked at the caves in France at a place called Lascaux, um, famous cave. The, the images go back to about seventeen thousand years ago. And on one wall of this cave, you have this this huge red deer. Red deer is like an elk in North America, and it's got thirteen dots that lead to a box. And this red deer is in a running. It's running. It's got a huge antler set. It's got it. It's got his neck up, and it's got this huge. Um, Billow of um, like it's not like um, hot breath air, so it's in the morning. The, that that red deer is calling in the cows. 
That's what they do. And that's the start of the rut in the same way as for the Serengeti wildebeest. And so native, so if you go down this, these caves, you can actually see that they have, in one part of the cave, they have all the running animals. In another part of the cave, they have, you know, the females drop and they're young. They knew this, and they had to know it to, to live, to, actually to survive and, and, and have time to make all this fabulous art. So Native Americans were, Native Americans were, lived in Berengia. Um, they came down about 15,000 years ago. They were in Berengia, which is that, was, was the landmass between Alaska and Siberia um, when the, the oceans were lower. And they were there for about, for about 10,000 years. So if you add 15,000 to 10,000, that's 25,000 years ago. So the, the Lascaux Cave, which has the same tradition, is, is um, closer to our time than the Native Americans have come down from Berengia. And so this tradition that the Native Americans have of telling time by, the, by the, sun, the, the, the sun and the moon goes deeper in time, goes even deeper than that Pelican Cave art at Lascaux from 17,000 years ago. And I believe that a great deal of this, this cave art in Europe is about telling time of the animals. Because mm-hmm. if you can't tell the time, you can't find the food. Right. I now, mean, they, they didn't have, they didn't have um, you know, they didn't have watches as we have them. They didn't have, you know, big freezers. And um, if you missed the food, you missed everything. Yeah. And, and uh, when I started working on the biological time work, that was about... Mm, about 15 years ago, and I would give presentations to the Fish and Wildlife Agencies who I was cooperating on because we were working together in the data. And uh, I also give presentations to the tribes in the Columbia Basin and to go to the tribal councils. And I'd get about halfway through the presentation, and then they'd start talking to each other because hmm. they had the calendars, but they never recognized they were just following the calendars. And I'm not, not just following the, but they're following the calendars. They never recognized that they were, the moon was out of sync with the sun, they were just going from one animal to the other to harvest them. Yeah. And they, had, they also had in their myth. And if you ask the Native American in the lower Columbia Basin, when, you call, when, when is the time to catch the salmon, they're going to tell you this story. They all tell the story of the coyote, the swallows, and the salmon. And after about 20 times hearing this story, I'm like, maybe there's something to this story. And what they say in their myth is that the swallows precede the salmon in the same way as the white pine butterfly precedes the salmon for the twallops up in Seattle. Now, let me ask you a little more about the cave paintings. Are these things that you've been able to see? You've just read so the, about the, the, them? These are all publicly available images that you can find online. I have not been in Lascaux. In fact, actually, no one can go to Lascaux. It's been closed for about mm, 15 years. Oh, really? There is a, there is a roving exposition, uh, ex, exposition of Lascaux. But if you go to, if you type in Red Deer for Lascaux, you'll see the image. You can actually, I actually do, if you go to my, my um, YouTube channel, beforeorion.com, all spelled out, I have images of this stuff. I do videos, two-minute videos, people can get the idea. Um, and you can see all, all this sort of stuff. I, the presentation I did at the Institute for Astronomy, University of Hawaii, a few months ago, is also on my, is on my beforeorion.com. And you give the presentation, all the images, all the, the topics that we're going to talk about tonight, or they actually show the images with the calendars, with the cave art, and, and, the, and the Native Americans, all that sort of stuff. So I haven't been to Lascaux, and if it ever opens up, I have people on the inside to take me. Hmm. But it was closed uh, about 15 years ago for, um, actually more, maybe 20 years ago, because the human, our breath was... Degrade, was creating like um, um, organisms 
that were degrading the, the art. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> the masses of people. Um, but no, but you could, it's um, Lascaux, people can look up um, Red Deer, and you can see the image of the, this big megaloth, this big red deer, what's blowing out. It's also my, my, uh, my videos. How do you but spell cool Lascaux? Um, so anyway, back to the, so this is a concept we've had for tens of thousands of years at least. Yeah. I'd be willing to bet we had it for hundreds of thousands of years. So anyway, I give this presentation to Native American tribes. About halfway through it, they, they, um, they start asking questions to each other, and, they, and there was always one name they brought up, this, guy, this, this Native American chief, Chief Tommy Thompson. And he was at the lower Columbia River, in, you know, maybe 800 mile, 80 miles from the Pacific Ocean, and he was the last great chief who ran kind of the big ceremony. He ran the clock. And he, he told everybody the myth, the story, which they all passed along about the coyotes and the swallows and the, and, and the salmon. But he never told them how it worked because he actually didn't understand how it worked. He didn't know that the juvenile salmon went out to the ocean and came back as adults. All he knew was the great almighty was sending him the salmon from the ocean. He didn't understand the biology. And so because he didn't understand the biology, he couldn't pass on that knowledge to, to his as, as the Native Americans in the Columbia Basin became more, you know, biologically astute in, in, the, in the modern sense, in the scientific sense, they lost, they, they, there was a disconnect between the traditions and what they learned in schools. And so they invited me to teach at the Native American schools um, in the Columbia Basin. And it was a lot of fun because, you know, these, these kids, who, they knew the stories and they knew the traditions and they knew the science, but they never, they they never, they could never tie it all together. And I had Native American chief um, the, on the tribal councils. I had people in tears, and they were like, "How we didn't know this?" And you know, the, the American, the, the Western biologists are telling them all this stuff, and it's it's wrong. And we had it all along. I gave this presentation to the to the um, the, the power brokers. You know, the, these are um, power managers of Columbia Basin, the people who you know decide you know tens of millions of dollars a day whether they have the dams running on or off. And I gave this presentation. It was complete silence. And then the head of the, the, the power council said, "The Indians had it all along, and um, and they did have it all along, but they had it in a, they had it in a different way." And so through my work of biological time. I connected the dots that they could see it. And now um, in fisheries management, people use this concept for how to manage the salmon in the rivers, how to let them go, when to let the juveniles go into the ocean, when to feed them, all that sort of stuff. So it became a, when I did this, I was out there, I mean, way out there. But it became a, um, a standard procedure um, with um, salmon um, management. Um, and that was a, probably about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, I did want to ask you, Bernie, uh, about the best way for folks to purchase the book. Should they just go to your website, go to Amazon.com? Amazon. Amazon's yeah, before, the best before way. Before Ryan is just as available as the ebook, trying to save the world. We don't need to kill any more trees. In 100 years, people are going to be looking back and say, why the heck did these idiots kill all those trees to print those books when they just could have read it on the Kindle? Well, we would not have a library then. Well, down, I will, you down. Libraries now, you can get your Kindle books, you can get yeah. your e-books. And uh, so, so Biological Time is, is a print book, but Before Ryan is um, just a Kindle. Just Kindle. 500 pages or so, full color. And how's it been doing for you? Um, well, it's, it's a passion for me, so it's fun. Um, it's, um, 
it's just been an incredible journey. Send me around, send me around the world to talk to people about cave art and salmon and and a little bit of ET. Hmm. That's where we go next. We go. Back, we have to go back. We need to move down the road to get closer to why there's no ET, and um, and there's it, it actually ties into a very big question that people have been asking for a very long time. Now this is get, this is where we get on kind of the women's side of things. Okay, the women's menstrual cycle is 28 days on average. Okay, okay. which is approximately the same as the moon, and people have been asking forever. How did that happen? Did the, the, the gravitational pull or something or the tides or something affect the women to make their menstrual cycle that way? And, well, it couldn't have been because, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, the moon was closer to Earth and was not in sync with the women's menstrual cycle. And hundreds of millions of years in the future, it won't be in sync again. So it's, it's kind of like this oddity of, home, of humans is that the women's menstrual cycle is the same as the moon. Now, on planet Earth, the only animals that have menstrual cycle are the apes, the bats, and the elephant shrew. So we're talking about 30, among millions of species of animals on this planet, we're talking about 50 have, the, have actually menstrual cycles, and homo sapiens, orangutans, and gorillas are the only ones that have in sync with the moon. Fascinating concept. And people ask it forever, well, you know, what's the connection? And I believe that there is no connection, there's no um, planetary connection between us and the moon. However, so that the moon didn't make, didn't put the women's menstrual cycle as it is. However, the, I believe that hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of years ago, there was um, the common answer to, to, uh, between us and the chimpanzee lived on a beach. And that common ancestor on the beach was, was female, and her cycle was the same as the tides. She synchronized with the tides. And by knowing what the tides were, she could better forage. She would know, you know, the, the, you know, you know, the right time of the month for the crabs, right, and the right time of the month for the, the grunion. And she could actually tell time, and which set her apart from every other animal species on this planet because none of them could do that. And over, to, over, over, you know, thousands of years, and it could have happened many times over because that, that those individuals, that family, could have could have not succeeded. They ultimately learned that it wasn't just the women's cycle and the, the tides, but it was also the moon, and that set in motion the first timekeeping, conscious timekeeping, of as far as we know, any animal on this planet. It's, it's huge. As a concept, it's absolutely huge. So we, because, we as humans are connected to the moon? So we're not, we're, connected to, we're not connected to the moon, but what we, we, I believe we first learned to tell time for the moon because the woman's menstrual cycle is approximately the same as the timing of the lunar cycles, the light, the light, dark cycles of the moon, and the tides. And it helped, it helped some distant ancestors of ours no one to go catch the grunion, no one to catch the flying fish, when to go look for the white pine butterfly, when to catch the salmon, when to ultimately know when the, the serengeti wildebeest and the black-tailed deer were best time to get them, to hunt them. And so, so we're not specifically timed to the moon. It's but a you've heard the story. So tell me one story you've heard about people on the moon. That I've heard? Yeah, you know. Give me, give me two stories you've heard about people on the moon. 
people on the moon? People um, and the moon, our relationship with the moon, that how the moon affects us. Well, you know, you certainly hear about when there's a full moon and some people supposedly start acting psychotically. That's one. And, and you know, the tr- and, and I'll address that one first. The truth is, so people have actually studied that question. It's like a real question. This isn't like one of those, like, you know, things that people talk around at the bar. This is one of the things that scientists have actually studied. And the answer to that one is that the, the people that were psychotic at night, they were psychotic during the day. But the full moon was keeping them awake. Mm. So they were out and about. But good, that's good. And, of course, that leads to, you know, werewolves and all that other stuff, right? Sure. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's one. You got another one? Um, well, the, the other one I was going to mention was, you know, the wolfman. The wolfman. Yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> right. And, and, and they're real. They're, ba- they're based on real observations in our world. And so what we were their responses to the light-dark cycles of the moon. And today, you and I, you know, I've got electric lighting in the house, and the, 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 the laptop's lit up. We today don't respond to those light-dark cycles because we don't live out in the woods. Um, gorillas do. So gorillas actually respond to the same light-dark cycles. They're up during the full moon nights, they're partying, and during the dark nights, they're sleeping. It's because... It's just a function of the light. Did right. you ever go up to, like, Alaska during the summertime? I've never been there, no. Okay, so you go up to Alaska, you go salmon fishing in the summertime. Well, it's 24 hours light Sure. in the middle of the summer. You get off the airplane, and, you know, for the first two or three days, I mean, you're just, you're just fishing. I mean, it's um, time. It's, it's, it's daylight. And, and then you just crash because you just can't do it. You know, you get groggy and you just crash and you mm-hmm. just you can't do it any longer. And so the, the gorillas are the same way and that they're, they're up during the full moon nights. So back to the women's menstrual cycle. And um, um, when I gave a presentation in Hawaii a few months ago, and I said there, half the crowd was nodding and half the crowd was shaking their head, all the women were nodding. They were all nodding because they got it. Yeah, because they they they've been thinking. Women have been thinking about this since time memorial and this concept. And the, the women have traditions and myths and lore and poems and everything else you can imagine about their connection to the moon. They don't tell us about this stuff, and we don't read those books, right? Um, but they do, and they're um, women believe that they're spiritually tied to the moon, and the reason is because their menstrual cycle is approximately approximately the same. So I just said the women, women, human, homo sapiens women are approximately the same, but here, and that gorillas and, um, and orangutans are also about the same. But here's something that different from us than chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are 37 days on average. So based on what I'm saying, is it possible that the chimpanzees could have the same lunar timing mechanism that we have were on sync with the moon? Hmm. Damn right. Could, yeah. could, they could have happened. They would have to change their timing. They, so I believe that the chimps didn't make that great leap forward of timing, that conscious timekeeping because their biological clock is not timed to the moon. The day the chimps will come, lots of beach, if they have beachfront property, we're all gone. The chimpanzees at some different point in the future, they could make that leap. And they could become us. And... Uh, it's entirely possible based on my hypothesis, right? Yeah. So it's a fast, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating concept. Now here's a, there's women, you, you can talk to your wife and 
she'll say that when she was in a dorm or when she was in a bunch of other, other women who they lived together for a period of time, that their menstrual cycle is synchronized. How, and, but women around the world, otherwise, they're, they're, they're not synchronized. And so the women are not all tied to the full moon or the new moon or all that sort of stuff. But when they do live in close quarters, they become synchronized. And um, it's, studies have been done on this one, too. And um, p- women who live in dorms observe it, and non- nuns, and, and so on. Um, and so it's the concept that women will synchronize, and these, these distant ancestors of ours, um, hundreds of millions of years ago, the common ancestor, us, us the chimpanzee, they synchronized. And they synch- that, that group synchronized over generations. And ultimately, they got off the beach. And they and because they could ultimately tell the time out by the the moon itself, the women became less important in the hunting and the timekeeping, and they went and the men could go out and go hunting for serendipity wildebeest and and black-tailed deer, and they could they can they can build these entire observations of other animals in their environment, and it also allowed them to move across continents, because the now there's deer on all the continents, so they could. You know, a common element of the timing for those, and there's migratory fish in all the continents. They they could they can do that as well, and so they carry this knowledge throughout as we traveled. It enabled us to outcompete all the other animals because all the other animals they respond to the light and dark cycles, whereas we can think ahead and we can plan. And ultimately, the planning allows us to build radio telescopes and spacecraft and all these other things. Okay. So now we're going to get back to the ET question, the big question. So Bernie's hypothesis, biological time, that we're, we, we've been talking about, is that all animals, are, most animals are tied to the relationship between the, the Earth and the Moon, and, and of course the Sun. However, homos, humans, we're to, we actually can think ahead in time. We're bio, through the women's menstrual cycle. At some distant point in the past, we learned to te- actually tell time, not just respond to light-dark cycles, okay? Big difference. But the moon, at, the dis- at some point in the past, we were, not, we were not tied to. And some distant point in the future, we would not be tied to. So let's say we get an exoplanet outside of our solar system. No moon, okay? But you've got some sort of like, you know, maybe, maybe a chimpanzee menstrual cycle, how the heck, if chimpanzees couldn't figure out how to do it on this planet, how could they do it on another planet where there is no time-keeping time mechanism? That's, that's biologically natural to them and as an extraneous to them that they could learn from. Could it happen? Why is that? I don't think it could happen. I think it's, I think it's like it's so, it's in an infinite universe, this is, this is almost impossible because it's... The moon is first. Number one is that the chimpanzee would have on another exo, another planet outside our solar system would have needed a, some sort of mechanism to learn how to tell time, mm-hmm. the moon and the tides. Just as I believe we, we we learned how to do it. So no moon, no time. Okay, I sound like Trump right now, right? But it, it's really <laughs> thing. No moon, no time. Okay. No time as far if there's we have no idea of any other mechanism because it sure as heck hasn't happened on this planet. Okay. So let's say that the, the, the chimpanzees on you know, planet Z out, way out there, and they have 37-day menstrual cycle. But the moon is at, you know, has a 100-day cycle because it, it's further away from that planet. Chimpanzees still can't tell time 
because it can't use its own biological clock to learn how to do it. T- consciously telling time is not like an evolutionary imperative. It's something that we learn. We 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 sort of stumbled across mm-hmm. because we were in sync with the moon. And if we weren't in sync with the moon, I don't believe it ever would have happened. Because it didn't happen with, with the chimpanzee at 37 days. They never figured out how to do it. And we have a common ancestor with them. So at the point in the past, our brains weren't that much dif- different from the, the chimpanzee. But, but biologically, we were. Our clock was different. So we have, so exoplanet way out there, no moon, I say no time. But not only that, but the, the, in, in, the, in the, the biological life history of the planet itself, the moon would have to be at the same time away from uh, uh, the planet to be synchronous to the menstrual cycle of the animal, okay? Which was a window of time on our planet. If it didn't happen in our, in, in, if it didn't happen, you know, a few hundred thousand years ago, and it, and it didn't happen the next few hundred thousand years ago, it wouldn't have happened at all. So it, we've had this like unique time period in our existence of, on this planet that we just our the women's cycle just overlapped with that of the moon, which allowed us to tell time. And in an infinite universe, there's you know there's trillions of planets. The possibilities of this happening again, that the, the overlapping of the the of the uh, biological life form. Having a menstrual cycle, which is, you know, I'm saying is that 50 species on this planet among the millions, it is just so, it's so improbable. I don't believe this. I, don't, I believe that there's, there's alien life, you know, equivalent intelligence of a dolphin or, or an elephant out there, maybe, maybe even chimpanzees. But I don't believe that there's an intelligent, conscious, timekeeping life off of this planet. Equivalent Unless to humans, yeah. Yeah. For this reason, does it make sense? No, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. So we've so we so we've killed off more aliens today than Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's go to our first caller. Uh, joining us on the line from the state of Florida is Ralph. Ralph, welcome to the program. You're on Beyond Reality Radio with Bernie Taylor. Good morning, sir. Hello. Hey, Ralph. What's it's it's still evening here in Oregon. Uh. Yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Uh, good morning, both of you. Good morning. Uh, you know, I I have literally farmed all my life. I mean, I grew up on it was. My mother would have went to jail for what I did when I was a kid today. But anyway, I mean, I have sat out there as you pick a crop during the day. And it's it's deleted, and and the sun's hitting it, and then at night you come in there in the afternoon. Actually, I mean, uh, you know, the sun's setting around five o'clock in the afternoon. The summertime in Florida is still pretty good sun, and you fertilize it with water soluble fertilizer, and you run it through drip irrigation. I don't know if you follow me there, but yeah, I um, do, and. It's the most conservative way to do it. But anyway, you can, when the the moon is waxing and wanting, three or four days before and three, four days after, the difference in the way those plants react 
is it's just it's just like the sun. You're right, like Ralph. You're right on. Yeah. You're um, so what what you're observing is biologists have observed it as well. And uh, Charles Darwin, who wrote The Origin of Species, also observed that. He wrote a book about it called The Power and Movement of Plants. So you could actually, you just think about it. You could have like a moon garden, right? And uh, some of the plant, you could have them moving around for, with the moon, right? And, and the daytime, you could have daytime um, direction. You could have nighttime direction. But you are 100% correct. And before I talked about the Native Americans, uh, the Thompson Indians and the Columbia Basin, about the big animals and the salmon, but they were also picking, they were also harvesting fruit and plants based on the moon as well. In, Fran- in France, they, they pick, they, the whole country picks the grapes on the same night, on the same day and night, and it's always around the full moon. Mm. And so what your observation is 100% correct is they're responding to the light-dark cycles of both the sun and the moon. And right on with that. Um, you, and what, you, so what, what, what you just told us is that you live outside. You spend a lot of time outside, like hunter-gatherers did, the Native Americans, whereas the rest of us, you know, we're watching TV and looking at our laptops with the lights on. We miss the big show, what's going on out there, and that's what you see. No, I have no light pollution more on that whatsoever. But my dog's going crazy, and they're talking about a black moon, okay, because we're going to have two full moons in this month. Is that correct? Um, so I can't say that. Well, you know, your dog's going to go crazy around the full moon because there's going to be all kinds of critters running around out there that he can see. Mm. So no, the critters are, the, the no, critters are out and about right during the full moon as well. So it's not a direct response to the moon. It's what's being illuminated by the moon. Exactly. Yeah. It's keeping things awake, things that otherwise would have been hidden away. What exactly is a black moon? I hear that all the time. What exactly does that mean? That's a question for Ralph. I've never heard that before. You still I with just, us, Ralph? I, I've just been hearing it. It's a black moon. Black moon. It, because yeah. we're going to have, well, we had a blood moon, we had a, a blue moon, a blood moon, and now we're going to have a black moon because it's going to be two full moons in one month. Hmm. Is that not correct? So that's typical of a blue. Uh, well, you, I, I actually never heard it that way, but that is correct. You can have two full moons in one month, and so Easter. I said Easter earliest time to the, the Easter is the first full moon, which is after the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And you count the first full moon is called the ecclesiastical full moon. You count from the first new moon thirteen days to the first full, first full moon, and you can have a second full moon as well. And so. East, you got Easter, you, you get, you know, we, you know, Easter, we all look at the calendar, right? But before we had these calendars, and people were actually look at the sun and the moon. And you had to have the right moon, otherwise people would be selling Easter, celebrating Easter on different days. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, it's a, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Now, people around the world also typically celebrate their holidays, um, their religious holidays at the full moon. And the reason is that before electricity, it was, you didn't have to have the lights on. We didn't have lights to have them on. You have to, you have to, you have torches and candles because the moon kept the party alive. Mm. And 
people could travel to and from the party at night with the light of the moon. Ralph, thank you very much for the call. We appreciate thank you, uh, Ralph. You, appreciate you chiming in. One thing I wanted to uh, talk to you, Bernie, about is this Drake equation. What exactly yeah, we is that? Yeah, we got to talk about the Drake equation. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so if you ask a scientist, is there intelligent life in the cosmos? And scientists will always pull out the Great Drake equation, and they basically astronomically they say. In the, in the cosmos, there's so many suns and so many planets, and we, you know, have so many blue planets that could have life like ours, and they project that concept out and that we have intelligent, time-keeping life in our planet, in our solar system. Therefore, all those solar systems out there should have the same thing. Well, I think it's bunk. And yes, it's science, but I think it's bunk. I think it's bunk because it's missing this whole biological time question. Intelligent life in the cosmos is not a question of how many exoplanets, how many, how many, solar, how, how many planets are in the, are the solar systems. It's a biological question that is not addressed in the Drake Equation. The Drake Equation was formulated by a fellow named, an astronomer named Frank Drake, and he was one of the, the, the founders of SETI, the SETI Institute, the Search for Extra extraterrestrial intelligence. And those are the people that have the big radio telescopes. Remember the movie Contact with Carl Sagan? Jody, well, Carl Sagan wrote it with Jody Foster. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's got her uh, headphones on. She's on top of the car listening to music. And then she gets the signal from, you know, out there. Well, that's a, that, that was like the, the, that's SETI. Yeah. So she was there before SETI. So SETI is the one who, who promoted this, this Drake equation that is mainstream science. This isn't, you know, this is any astronomer, any physicist, this is the answer they'll give you. But my, what I, we talked about today is it's not about how many solar systems, how many blue planets out there. It's a biological question that is not addressed in the, in the Drake equation. And by the way, SETI hasn't invited me to speak yet. Just put it out there. So I, don't, I didn't get invited to speak at SETI, and I'm definitely banned from contact in the desert. Um, <laughs> And ancient aliens are never going to let me on the program. Right. Um, so the so and you can think of any you make a list of all the other other ET type of stuff. Um, but the so so the Drake equation is the scientific um, how they answer the how they how they propose. So they project what happened in our solar system, in our planet, out into the cosmos and say there's. They say there's you know in, in, there's trillions of planets out there that could have intelligent life like ours, but here's the big problem that they're, now they're asked they're saying well why the big silence why don't we hear anything if all these intelligent life are out there what you know why aren't they listen, why aren't we getting their signals on the radio telescopes which is like the stuff you saw Jodie Foster in the movie right and and that's called the Fermi paradox Fermi, Fermi paradox. So scientists, they answer why we don't have. Um, and this, this is this isn't this isn't ancient aliens, right? Um, and this isn't contact and doesn't. This is mainstream science, and they say, well, we are. You know, there's a long list. They're already here. You know, they they, they just don't. You know, where are the aliens? They they um, they um, they um, they're so far away that they're. They're, they can't communicate with us, which actually isn't very good because radio telescopes pick up um, signals from a long way. And uh, life is extremely rare is another one of the so-called Fermi paradox. 
And my argument is, it's not that life isn't rare. I do that. I, I have no problem with life being all over the cosmos. And by the way, a lot of astrobiologists don't think it is. And so, it's not that life is rare. It's that this intelligent, conscious, timekeeping life is rare, mm. such that we are Homo sapiens. If you can go look at Curiosity Stream and National Geographic and all these places, and they'll show you that you know animals live in volcanoes and all these crazy environments, and um, well, those animals didn't evolve in those environments. Um, they didn't get sprung from those environments. They they came from someplace else, and they migrated into those environments where they were able to live. So just because animals can live in in an extreme environment doesn't mean that they can be sprung forth from those environments. And and conscious timekeeping, as we do it, is not an evolutionary imperative. It's so unique on this planet, so unique in our solar system, that we just can't project it out to the cosmos just because of the heck of a lot of stars and um, solar systems and and exoplanets out there. By the way, exoplanets are planets in other solar systems. Okay. And uh, so as a, so the science a- answers the ET question with the Drake equation, and they answer the, why the big silence, really, it's a big, because we have had no, we've had no legitimate signals. With all these radio telescopes out there that we're listening to, we're listening to out, out there, and we, we listen to millions of planets, um, millions, maybe millions, thousands of solar systems at least. We haven't heard anything. And um, you know, every once in a while some sort of static comes through and everybody starts jumping up and down, and then they find, oh, you know, it's just, you know, around, you know, someone someone's ham radio went haywire or something. So it sounds um, to me like you're not much of a believer in the UFO sightings, that those are any anything significant. Well, actually, I'm a complete believer in UFO sightings. Unidentified flying object. Doesn't mean they're aliens. Right. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the spacecraft, the, um, the, um, let's say the, the high-techs, um, I'm not sure spacecraft is the right word, but... Um, aircraft that were developed in the 60s and 70s, we didn't know what they were until, the, you know, the 80s and 90s when they, they crashed in Iraq and places, right? And so we, just because someone sees something in the sky that is, in fact, an aircraft doesn't mean it came from, you know, planet X. Um, and, that, and there's also a lot of objects that are people, you know, weather balloons, you know, by lot, um, meteorological formations, I mean, there are a lot of things that happen, and these things haven't gone on for a long time. But the concept of just, I believe, absolutely buying to the whole UFO phenomenon because there's lots of stuff flying around and lots of meteorological formations that we, we you and I can't identify, but you know there's people in the military that can, um, at least in certain parts of the military. And the military, our military is not in the business of giving out their secrets. Um, so, no, I'm not a... So the UFO phenomenon are the objects... Um, you know, I have think it has nothing to do with ET. So then you have the question of visitations and so forth, right? Um, and if someone shows me a body, I want to see an autopsy. I don't want to see something on, on YouTube that someone made up in their basement. Um, <laughs> someone shows me an autopsy, then everything I just said tonight is completely bunk. And I accept that. So here's actually a challenge out there to the audience. If you can get on YouTube, if you think, if after this conversation, if you believe that there's still ET out there in the cosmos, 
you give it a thumbs down on this on the YouTube channel on this YouTube episode. But if you believe that I've at least put the question in your mind that it's not possible, give it a thumbs up. And that's a challenge out there to the the YouTube audience. And let's see, because um, I see there's a lot of there's a lot of chatter out there mm-hmm. on the subject. So, Bruce, where do you stand now after an hour and a half of a, a different perspective? Well, I guess I've always had my doubts, um, but at the same time, I'm I'm willing to be open minded about the possibility uh, of intelligent life being out there, and and that that brings us back to the original question we asked right at the top: Are we alone in the cosmos? Seems to me that you're basically saying, in terms of intelligent life, that's similar to us. Yes, we are alone. There is life out there, but it's not intelligent. It's not at the same level. Is am I accurate in what I'm saying? You got it right on. Well, I would say that the probability is so low, and if it, if it does exist, it would be so far away from us, we're never going to hear from them. Yeah, but you're willing to change your mind if somebody comes up with something legitimate, tangible, you're, you're, you're open-minded I want to that see a sense. body. Yeah, you want to see a body. <laughs> I want to see a body. And I, in fact, I don't want to see a spacecraft because we have, we have lots of resources to make spacecraft. I want to see a body. And if someone, someone rolls out a body and, um, you know, I'm good. But until that point, I just because we're not we're not getting the radio signals and we're not getting other signals as well. Yeah. And so, what? Where's the evidence? And that, but you probably recognize that you know you know people talk about you know the ancient Egyptians thought about aliens, but they didn't actually. The, the UFO phenomenon, you know, is probably about the last hundred years, um, and so it really starts asking. Actually, really since the 1950s, that really pops out, and got to ask the question, well, why all of a sudden are we people thinking about UFOs and ETs and all this sort of stuff? And um, I think it's Hollywood. First yeah. of all, I think, you know, it was pulp fiction, pop fiction, but then it became Hollywood. And um, so does the possibility exist? No one will ever know, because um, you can't disprove a negative. But is it probable? Highly. It's highly unlikely. Yeah. And so, and so, the, when I give these presentations to professional astronomers, you know, we're, we're not we're not talking just you know people at the universities. We're talking to people who do this for a living. They do research. They're studying asteroids and exoplanets and all this sort of stuff. You know, they're they're scratching their head because they've been telling this story of science, the Drake Equation, for a long time. Big bucks in this thing, and they um, it, it's what they came to accept. But they were missing this piece of the equation, the equation that is biological time, where we started off, that out, life on this planet, from the grunion to us, is time to the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon. And if any of those are different, then, our, then life will be different on another place. So there's no grunion like animals on planet Z way out there. Can't be. And, and there's, I would argue, at the same time, that we're, that equivalent to us, conscious timekeeping animals, it's, it's highly rare. You know, yeah. squirrels, you know, the, squirrels don't think ahead to hide the nuts. So at a, at a, in the fall, there's an, over, there's an abundance of acorns. And the squirrels put the, hide them away. 
squirrels actually forget where they put the nuts, okay? And so you know, we, we think about animals being able to do this sort of stuff, but they're actually not, they, just their life history strategy and how they, they, they evolved is that they, they, they went to live in places where there's lots of acorns and they stash them away when they get, they hoard. Um, but it doesn't mean that they, they knew that they were hoarding for the future. Our guest has been Bernie Taylor. His website, www.beforeorion.com. His newest book is Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Bernie, thanks for being with us these last two hours. It was fun, Bruce. Bruce, let's do it again. Sounds good. Thank you. Tomorrow night, Friday night, will be a best of edition of the program. J.V. Johnson will be back Monday for the next live show. His guest will be Stephen A. Schwartz, futurist, scientist, and author discussing his work with remote viewing and its uses in archaeology and national security. On Tuesday, the guest, Gerard Artson, educator, author, and student of the Ageless Wisdom, is asserting that the people behind the UFOs are on a spiritual mission to help our ailing world. And then on Wednesday, the guest, Mark Kyes, parapsychologist and director of the Pennsylvania Paranormal Association. We thank you for joining us tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Have a great weekend, everyone. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJ Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.